This is episode 101 with certified strength and conditioning specialist, USA cycling expert coach, and the creative lead behind two strength courses on training peaks, Mr. Menachem Brody. Runners, welcome back to the Strength Running Podcast. Today, we are discussing one of my favorite topics, strength training. Why are we talking about strength training? Well, it has the potential to change you, to lower your injury risk, improve your efficiency, give you a faster finishing kick, increase your power, and improve your finish times. What's not to love? Now, if you want a real-life example of the power of strength training, I just published a case study of a runner named David on the Strength Running blog this week. He's a 73-year-old Boston Marathon qualifier who's run his last two marathons healthy and pain-free. And this is after he tore his hamstring off the bone in 2013 and then got a stress fracture in 2014. His comeback has been just incredible, and it's due to strength training. So on the show today, we're going to get a bit lost in the weeds with our guest, Menachem Brody. He has his strength and conditioning specialist certification. He's a USA cycling expert coach with distinction and has nearly 20 years of coaching experience in cycling and triathlon. But it's his breadth of experience in the sports medicine industry that made me so interested in speaking with him. He's worked in emergency medicine, physical therapy, and even in a variety of sports like basketball and CrossFit. My conversation with Menachem focuses on strength training for recovery versus performance, periodization of weightlifting, and his thoughts on bulking up as endurance runners, among many other topics. It's also a very special week because we are offering a big 25% discount on our flagship Weightlifting for Runners course, high performance lifting. This program was released in January 2018 and quickly became one of our most popular and effective programs because it's the only comprehensive, periodized, runner-specific, progressive strength program built by a USA weightlifting national coach and a USA track and field certified coach. This is the first and potentially only time we're discounting the program publicly like this, so don't wait. Discount code STRONG will save you 25% on either tier of high-performance lifting. Go to strengthrunning.com HPL to join us, but don't jog, run, because the code expires on Friday, July 12th. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Menachem Brody. Menachem, welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jason. Really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited as well. We have a lot to cover today, and I'm really excited to dive deeper into the topic of strength training with you, but I thought it might be helpful to start with your background because you've done so many interesting things in both the triathlon and the cycling space with regard to strength training, and I'd love to hear how it all started, how it all came together for you. So maybe we could start with cycling. How, how did you get started with cycling? Well, initially it was as a, as a kid, you know, we all, I think are a large part of us started with, uh, you know, our Huffies or our, our steel frame bikes that our parents got for us at Toys R Us, which we now know is the worst thing in the world. <laughs> Lucky we didn't die. Right. Um, 
really what what I got into more serious for cycling was as a mode for transportation in uh, in college. Um, I was looking for a summer job. I wound up getting a job as a lifeguard in Bloomfield, Pennsylvania, which is about a five and a half, six miles from my, my house, my parents' house. And I needed to get to and from. Uh, the city buses in Pittsburgh, even today, they're a lot better than they were back then. But uh, it would take me about three hours to take a bus uh, to and from each way if they came on time. So I essentially wound up taking my sister's old steel huffy, uh, 12 speed, and uh, riding it to and from work. And uh, on the way home, there's a golf course, the Shenley Park Golf Course, which has a nice uh, little hill to it. So I wound up, uh, as everybody, you know, trying to beat the the roadies and the fast bikes and the the lycra, and wound up doing pretty well. And um, what happened is, is over my time, I actually coached basketball, uh, middle school and, and high school basketball. I started very young. I started coaching elementary school, probably at the age of uh, 14. And then I wound up coaching high school basketball as soon as I graduated. Uh, the varsity team for the community center. And uh, that led me to the University of Pittsburgh, working for the men's basketball team when we were rated in the uh, top 25 for for the AP and the coaches poll. And I just needed another sport. Basketball became my life. Um, so that's actually how I got into both cycling and running. Um, cycling started first, and then running was when a, one of my childhood friends moved back home from Ithaca after his sophomore year. Uh, he and I would start running in, in the evenings in the fall. So my favorite time to, to ride is actually in the evening, and my favorite time to run uh, is actually in the evening as well at sunset. So um, that's like the short of how I got into it. Uh, if we want, we can dive into how I got into coaching. I'm, I'm guessing that's kind of where you're going with that. Uh, would you like me to kind of uh, go there or do you want to stop and kind of how awful of a cyclist and a runner was I? <laughs> well, I think whatever your personal accomplishments might be is is almost irrelevant to kind of what you're doing now. And I think what you're doing now is, is really interesting and very helpful for um, the cycling community, the triathlon community, and, and by extension, the running community. Um, now, I do want to talk about the coaching side of things. Uh, and, and not only that, but just all the different coaching experiences that you've had, the certifications that you have. Uh, and, and in particular, as we kind of start talking more about strength training, you know, you have a, a national strength and conditioning association certification um i believe it's the cscs which is the certified strength and conditioning specialist certification um so i kind of want to talk about how you got into coaching why uh you opted for this certification and kind of your evolution of your approach to strength training for endurance athletes Great question. And and there's actually a ton there, believe it or not. Um, so pretty much I got into coaching, as I mentioned, with basketball. And, and basketball was also physiological. And my thing is, is I was never the most skilled or talented player. I always had to work hard for it. But when we stepped foot into the, the rectangle at the beginning of the season for tryouts, I was always the best conditioned player there, uh, save for maybe Brian Turner or uh, Bubba Silverblatt. Those two guys were just animals as well. But we loved training. Uh, and that's kind of how I got into coaching. Um, my fitness journey started when I was uh, 10, 11, 12. I actually got bullied in school and I got uh, suspended for three days uh, So I for fighting. So I wound up being at home. This is back when ESPN2 in the mornings used to play Get Fit with Gilad, which I, I realized last year I've come full circle living in Tel Aviv right up the street from the beach that he had that on uh, that they filmed it on. But essentially, when it came down to university, I actually started off in English writing, and that's where I'm, I'm starting a little bit more creative writing and blog posting now. Um, 
And I just realized I couldn't, I didn't want to write. I couldn't get a job that I would enjoy as a writer. I, I enjoy it as a hobby. And I just started looking like, what do I enjoy learning about? So I decided to do physical therapy. Thankfully, uh, one of the teachers and also my own physical therapist from when I injured my uh, my ankle back in high school were like, Menachem, don't, don't do that. You're going to be bored. You, you don't want to be stuck in a... Uh, uh, rehab clinic and working with you need to be out working in the field running around doing stuff and thank god for that because uh, i wound up doing a switch i went into exercise physiology with a uh, specialization in coaching so if you want to say that i've known since i was 11 12 this is what i wanted to do uh, that would be the truth i really did start i was writing training plans for, and they would come into the weight room and ask me questions and i was coaching them and, you know at the age of 13 14 the fagans uh the twins bobby and seth um seth rudman samson and nemo all these guys and I actually wound up finishing the University of Pittsburgh's program, which was American College of Sports Medicine accredited at the program. And the, a the ACSM HFI, which they have since changed, was the gold standard. So essentially what it came down to is I had to choose what test did I want to sit for because I did not have a lot of money. I was working for the men's basketball team 50, 60 hours a week uh, with a small scholarship. I was working as a barista. I was working as a, a floor trainer at the local community center and also as a lifeguard. Um, scratching stuff together. All this living at my parents' house, but I loved reading and learning. So I would earn money and then go out and spend it on coffee or on learning about exercise. It just came down to uh, Tim Belts, who's since become a very close friend and uh, a very, very close mentor as well. Uh, just kind of said, look, bro, if, if you want to do like the HFI thing, that's more personal training. If you want to do what we're doing here in the field, and I did intern with the, the men's basketball program uh, as a strength and conditioning intern with the, with the SNC department, he's like, this is where it's at. You already have the experience. You did the internship here. Why wouldn't you take the test? You love working with athletes. You like helping people be athletic. Uh, and that's why I took that exam. And since then, it's just kind of been, I think I have eight or nine. My wife just kind of laughs. I have a, a stack of them underneath the coffee table and frames. I'm always like, I should hang this up and then I get another one. Um, so that's that's kind of the short story, believe it or not. There's tons of more in there. I worked in a physical therapy setting for two years, uh, exercise scientist for a bariatric clinic with uh, American, uh, American ASMBS, American Society for Metabolic um, Surgery Centers. Um, there's so much different experience that I have and EMT on an ambulance running 911, but it all kind of was me curious, like, okay, I know how someone needs to perform to be a division one basketball player and be one of the best in the nation, but what happens if they get hurt? What's that process like? So all these different jobs I've held have kind of been me being curious about something and like, oh, let's learn more about that and let's just jump in the pool. One of the things that I was really drawn to you about is because you are your career is so indicative of someone who's interested in learning. You know, you've done so many different things. You have uh, many different certifications and you're, it seems like you're always on this quest to learn more uh, and to get as much experience as you can. And, and whenever I find someone like that, I pay a lot more attention to that person. Um, now, you kind of hit on something really interesting that I want to talk about a little bit more. And you were saying how, you know, you have this option of either being out in the field, helping athletes be more athletic with a focus on performance, or you could, you know, be in a rehab clinic, helping athletes get healthy from an injury. And it kind of, 
illustrates the the differences between strength training for rehabilitation versus strength training for performance. And and I'd love to dive into this a little bit more and talk about, you know, what are the big differences and how should runners in particular think about strength training as a tool for rehabbing an injury versus a tool for helping them get better performances out of themselves. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Absolutely. And and first of all, thank you. That's that's a huge have someone as experienced as yourself notice that 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 really means a lot and um that's kind of how i come at it is is let's learn about it and and that's not to say you know when i went from strength training in the the performance side that i ditched the the corrective exercise side of things i've been teaching this stuff glutes i was talking glutes back in 2007 2008 with the cyclists and triathletes i worked with and now thankfully uh it's commonplace but really there's such a crossover between developing for rehab and developing for performance. The difference is, is what's the microscope that we're, we're taking it down? Like how closely are we going to get into? Um, and if I may, if it's okay, we can, we can edit out later. But to, to mention, I had uh, Tony Gentlecore on my podcast and Tony and I have spoken a number of times. He's been on your podcast a number of cats with the triceps of a rhinoceros. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he and I spoke and it, it really was striking that the best strength coaches don't look at performance from, okay, what's your sport? We're just going to do, you know, for runners, runners, squats and step ups and lunges and leg presses and hamstring curls. But we're taking the step back and saying, if this is what you're getting a lot of in your sport, how do we keep the other stuff working well so you can keep doing that? Uh, and that's really the, the big difference. Uh, physical therapy and corrective exercise is really dialing into a specific uh, need that that athlete has. Totally guilty of being one of those trainers my first three or four years uh, once I received that CSCS certification and could personal train of being like, all right, we're going to do this corrective, that corrective, this foam rolling, this balance stuff. And that, and then we're like, oh, we got 10 minutes left. Let's uh, deadlift and bench press. So people that I worked with saw results, but looking back, had I known uh, then what I know now, looking back at it, the results I attain now is much faster because I understand, hey, dude, we have five plus one fundamental movements in the human body, push, pull, squat, hinge, press, and rotary stability. We've got to keep you still getting better at those uh, and keep you able to do what you need to do while also addressing the imbalances. And it's kind of been, you know, the, the word of the week, I guess, is metamorphosis for me. Uh, I've thrown it around a bunch of conversations this week. It's, it's understanding that we keep the main thing, the main thing. And I think that it's really interesting that now we're getting into becoming more mainstream, thanks in large part to people like yourself. I mean, strength running. Uh, I can't imagine what the, the, the flashback was or the throwback when you first started this. You know, how many people are like, oh, you know, Jason, you're crazy. Strength training and running, what are you doing? And really, it's such a, a main tenant if you want to be an athlete in any sport. But we also tend to like to say, okay, well, I got, I know I need the prehab stuff. I need to do the small stuff. I need to do running stuff. But I also want to do a bunch of stuff that looks cool. And that's where we can kind of get hung up on on things that are keeping us from being able to perform. And it really is keep it simple, stupid. Uh, kind of like Bruce Lee has said in the past, uh, when I was a beginner, a kick was a kick, a punch was a punch. Then for a while, a kick was more than a kick, and then a punch was more than a punch. And as I moved toward mastery, a kick was a kick, and a punch was a punch. Meaning we start off, we don't really know 
what's going on. Uh, we're kind of like, oh, all right, cool, this movement, all right, got it. And then, hmm, well, let's dig into this and see, oh, well, if the brachial radialis fires this way or the popliteus fires that way, that's going to affect this. And then after so many years, it's like, let's go back to that that major movement you had of the squat or the bench press. Um, so that's kind of the, the difference between the two is, is they both complement one another. And it's really a matter of kind of weighting it. Uh, is the kick a kick? Are you at the beginning and end of the spectrum where you're a beginner, injury-free, and looking to increase your performance and, and stay injury-free? Are you somebody who's in the middle? You know, that kick is more than a kick, meaning we've got to dive down into this. You know, you're overpronating. And we know now uh, what I've been preaching for years, and some people walked out my door, turned heel, because I told them running shoes will not fix your issue. You, you need to do strength training and work on your posture and breathing. Well, now we have studies that show that. Um, but we need to be able to dive in. And that's where that prehab rehab comes is there's the right time and the right place. Uh, there's also the right time and place to just keep it at the basic fundamentals, uh, push, pull, squat, hinge, press, and rotary stability. Um, and the struggle I think we have right now for endurance sports across the board is how does it work? How can we make it so that each person is finding what they need. And that's, you know, that's like, I kind of think that's where the sticking point is right now for runners. Cause I think that, uh, there's been a huge shift, especially for runners and triathletes and, and cyclists are kind of hanging on the, the coattails here of, Hey, we need strength training. We need to be strong. Uh, and then, you know, we get lost in the weeds kind of as, as everybody does, uh, when something new comes along. Yeah. You know, when I think back to my, kind of experience with strength training as an athlete and as a coach, you know, I kind of went through this metamorphosis myself where, you know, at first I didn't think you needed any strength training. You know, why do I need strong legs when I just thought of myself as, you know, uh, lungs with legs? <laughs> we know that that's not the case. And then I got much more into uh, different body weight routines, different rehab and prehab type stuff that is not as focused on performance, but really great for injury prevention. Uh, and then, you know, as I've kind of evolved my thinking and, and gotten to know more about this topic, there needs to be that balance. There has to be the balance between the work that you do to stay healthy and then the work that, of course, has some crossover, but is a little bit more oriented towards performance. Uh, now, I loved hearing you talk about fundamentals because I'm I'm really big on the fundamentals. I think, you know, we can get lost in the weeds with, you know, worrying about which handheld water bottle is best and whether we should be eating 20 grams of carbohydrate an hour or 22 grams but I think that stuff is not nearly as exciting as, you know, getting the basic building blocks right and then building off of that. And I really want to talk more about the five plus one basic movements that the human body is uh, uh, capable of because it's not something I've ever talked about on the podcast. Uh, so you went through them, but can you uh, go, through, uh, go through them again and maybe give us an example uh, exercise that would demonstrate uh, these movements? And then also, you know, why should runners care about some of these? Or is this something where, you know, only three of them matter for us? Or is that not a real question? Because all of them, of course, matter. Really, they they all matter. I mean, and and most of the time with a question like that, the answer is, Jason, as, as I've heard you say a couple, quite a few times on your podcast, it depends. Um, <laughs> every coach says but, that. <laughs> yeah, every good coach. You know, the, the, the ones that aren't quite there yet are like, this is their one answer. And we've all been there. Like, I, I remember when I started uh, squats, you have to have your feet 90 degrees ahead. My powerlifting coach was like, how about you flare your toes out? I'm like, oh, 10, 10 pound uh, PR? All right. Um, 
as it pertains for the fundamental five plus one, as I call them, um, these are just the, the fundamental human movements. Uh, so a push, there's a, a horizontal push, like a bench press, a pull, which would be a row, uh, push, pull, squat, squat, hinge would be a deadlift or a kettlebell swing done properly between a kettlebell swing and done properly uh push pull squat hinge press would be an overhead press and then rotary stability would be where you're learning how to lock the rib cage and pelvis together now you mentioned before in your your own journey that you went through the corrective exercise the body weight exercises this is an important step that we all need to go through and that's where physical literacy comes in and this is where um as americans we're we're pretty much sucking it up uh in that that area. Like we look at uh, Eric Cressy has, has become known for saying, you know, we have kids that can hit homers right field, opposite field, uh, right up center field. Uh, they can throw on a rope from outfield, you know, down to home plate, but they can't play a simple game of catch. Uh, we also have athletes at the age of 12 and 13 who are having Tommy John surgery, just to stay with the baseball uh, comparison. Tommy John surgery used to be very uh, rare. And Tommy John was in the 1970s, 1980s, and it happened because he was throwing so much. This is a gentleman in his 30s who's been playing baseball for his whole life. We're now seeing that in 12 and 13-year-olds. Now, like, uh, think sorry to that. interrupt you. What is Tommy John surgery? Because I'm not familiar with that. Ah, okay. So Tommy John surgery. So Tommy John was a pitcher in the major leagues. Uh, Tommy John surgery is where they take, if you take your hand, place it straight in front of you, uh, your arm straight in front of you, the inside of your elbow, those, there's the ulnar uh, collateral ligament, which is on the inside of the elbow. So it runs kind of like from uh, the inside of your, your bicep, we'll say, to the middle of your, your forearm muscle. Uh, and what it does is it resists the uh, rotational forces. So it kind of keeps, it's like an MCL for your knee. It keeps things from from uh, pulling apart. Um, so what happens through the motion of throwing a baseball because of the forces that are put there, and there are immense amount of forces, uh, that ligament can come become stretched or tear. Um, so we're seeing that now instead of players or pitchers in their, in their 30s, we're seeing it in kids in their teens ton of stress. Um, think about some of the cross-country runners we have uh, that are coming up that are very talented. They get to the, the collegiate level and they fizzle. Uh, either it's mental burnout, which is a whole nother we do uh, another podcast on because that is there's so much there. Um, but oftentimes it's also they physically peaked too early because they were so focused on just one sport as opposed to finding that balance of developing different skills. Um, there's a lot more to that, but I, I strongly suggest, you know, look up uh, Google Tommy John surgery. Um, the pictures are pretty tame, so you don't have to worry about being grossed out or anything. Um, but it is important that we think about it uh, from that perspective of the body weight exercises and the physical literacy. You know, we think of running as being natural and we can naturally do it. Well, think about a kid when they start running. If we sit down and actually watch kids playing, age of one, two, they're just learning how to walk, carry their center of balance. You know, they look pretty fun. Sometimes they run with their hands up, you know, like uh, Wallace and Gromit, if you've ever seen that uh, claymation, you know, it's cheese, <laughs> yeah. Gromit. Um, but then when we get to the age of four, five, six, seven, and eight, depending on how much they're sitting, which nowadays is a lot more, uh, I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Jason, from what I've seen, the ages of seven and eight are where most of these kids tend to have the most natural and amazing gait. And you just watch the, your niece or nephew run across the front yard. and You're like, wow, I, I really wish that I could could run like that. That's incredible. Um, so it's it's finding that balance where we're activating muscles that we don't naturally uh 
activate as much or as use as much. And to me, that happens in strength training and speed and agility training, but not like a runner, not like we're used to going to the track. I'm talking about softball, basketball, volleyball style uh, jumps, uh, lateral running, cariocas, uh, and, and running technique drills that take you laterally. And these are really important as well as teaching speed and change of direction at speed, uh, which allows the athlete to tune into the different parts of the body, activate uh, deep core musculature as well as stabilizing musculature. That's really the, the culmination where we have the fundamental five plus one come together to allow you to progress as a runner is, is just making you strong in the weight room. Great. Your bench press went up 20 pounds. Great. Your squat went up 30 pounds. You're not getting any faster as a runner because we're not training those abilities. So there's this balance, and I know I kind of went uh, off the path a little bit here, but bringing it back, the balance really is when you go into the weight room, if you stick to these fundamental five plus one, push, pull, squat, hinge, press, rotary stability, and then you work on giving yourself the opportunity to be physically literate, to do things you're not getting in your sport of running linearly, lateral sprints, uh, moving laterally, jumping, and learning how to deal with landing forces, you're going to become a better runner for two reasons. One, you've increased the intra and intermuscular strength and capabilities, the synchronization because of these movements with the weights. Two, you've allowed yourself, I mean, running is a ballistic movement, right? So if you're learning how to laterally move at speed and change direction, and you're also learning how to jump you're now actually putting the joints into the correct position where the muscles can do their jobs to support the joints properly. And the fascial system can be that free energy spring that allows you to just run like a gazelle and really spring like a gazelle down the road. Yeah, I like to joke that you. the goal here is really to turn your legs into pogo sticks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, this this idea of physical literacy is so fascinating to me, and I spent a long time last year in 2018 writing about this. You know, I talked about movement fluency and athleticism and how, you know, I actually tell runners, don't even label yourself a runner. You are an athlete that specializes in running. And when I look back upon my running career, and just to use myself as an example, you know, when I was running my fastest and feeling my best and, and just putting down impressive workouts and races, I was doing so much more than just running. I was doing a lot of drills. Uh, at the time, I was actually training for the steeplechase. So there was a lot of jumping and, and different types of mobility and movement drills built into our training at the time. We did a lot of trail running. I did a lot of running really, really fast, including absolute maximum effort sprints. I did a tiny bit of barefoot running and we did strength training. And when you add up all those things, that's how you move well. That's how you improve your running form and your mechanics and your technique. I think runners today are so focused on how they change their form actively when they're out running. But in fact, that's not how you improve your running form. And, and now we're, we're getting way outside the topic of strength training, but I'm getting fired up a little bit here. And you don't improve your running form by trying to improve your running form. You improve your running form by training. 
by running high mileage, by strength training, by doing drills, by working on your agility, by running workouts that force you to sprint and run a whole variety of different paces. And at the end of the day, that's how you move better as an athlete and really improve your injury resilience and also your ability to perform because you're not just a runner. You're a runner or you're an athlete that specializes in running. Yeah. And that's, that's so spot on. And I think you had, uh, uh, a post a while ago, uh, this is going back quite some time, if I'm not mistaken, but it was, um, uh, spotlight on speed. Um, I can't remember if it was a 5k or 10k, um, where you talk about, you know, the importance of speed. And, and the thing is, is that, uh, Steve McGregor, who's the co-author with, um, uh, Matt Fitzgerald on, um, the runner's edge. He actually had a research, if I'm not mistaken, uh, at Eastern Michigan University where they actually showed the running economy, the running efficiency for these track athletes, the one milers and the 5K and 10, uh, 10K. Their efficiency was only at their race pace. That was when they were the most efficient. When they were doing their warm-ups, their jogs, in between uh, their intervals at, at speed, their efficiency and economy went down significantly. And, and the important thing is here is that the strength that we're building in the weight room we're not the, the numbers don't matter. And I, I actually on my blog a couple of weeks ago in response uh, to someone who, you know, who said that strength training for runners, they're weak. Runners should be weak. We, we shouldn't have PRs in the weight room unless you're looking for general health and fitness. Totally fine. If you want to go out and you want to get better at marathon running or 10K, whatever your distance may be as a runner. Exactly what you said. It's consistency. It's frequency. It's quality of movement. But guess what? When we put you into the weight room and we take movements and we teach you how to coordinate the movements properly, and that's really what, what muscles are. They're like erector sets. When we get the muscles to work properly, the joints are in the right position and joint position dictates muscle function. The reason I knock there is that's something I mentioned over and over again and tried to drill into my uh, strength training for cycling or a triathlon success course because triathletes are some of the worst. You need to get off of the bike after being in a crunched position and go run fast, which most people can't because the muscles are so out of whack. For runners, we're not that far off. Think about how much we sit at the desk every day. I, I don't know about you. Like right now, I'm, I'm four weeks into a torn meniscus, so I, I haven't run for diddly for about four and a half, four and a half weeks, if I'm honest. Uh, the week before, I didn't do much. Um, it, it's when we go out and we run, when we when I sit at my desk and I'm like, oh, man, I really need to, I need to move. And I'm like, oh, I don't feel like going on the bike. All right, I live by the park. Oh, go take like a, a you know, 3K run. Not even. Usually it's one and a half, two, if that. It, and it's kind of pathetic at this point. Um but I feel awful getting out of my chair. I need to get get up. I need to move stuff around the apartment. Uh, and I, I, I joke with myself, like, I need to clean before I leave because that's going to get my muscles feeling better so I can actually go and run. And, and I'm not weak. I'm not out of balance. So I think about the average runner. Most of the people I work with, you know, the forward head posture from sitting at the desk or, or driving in traffic, by the time you get home and get your running kicks on, and you get out the door, you're still carrying a lot of stress in your shoulders. You're still rounded forward. Well, guess what? If we get you consistently getting out of your chair and going for runs three to four days a week, and we get you strength training two to three days a week, not just doing those sets of 12 to 15, which by the way are technically hypertrophy for muscle size, which we, we don't want, but we actually get you to go through and learn how to move and then move heavy things and then move heavy things at speed. 
you're going to feel better and more springy as you go down the road. And that's really where that magic happens for, for runners. So it's, it's exactly what you said. We're not runners. We're athletes who specialize in runners. And, and as Dr. McGill says, be an athlete 24 seven, like you can't just say, Oh, I'm putting on my running shoes and now I'm starting my warm up, And now I'm an athlete. It doesn't work like that. Either you're a runner trying to stay healthy and fit and run until you're 80. Uh, I forget that uh, Dirk something 71 just said the Boston PR. Uh, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, he ran a sub three marathon. He's is he 71? It was incredible. Yeah. And, and if you look at his posture, it looks better than the guy next to him in his 50s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but that that's what it comes down to, you know, uh, and it's so it's so we can get into the nuances and really dig in and make it this whole big convoluted thing. But it comes down to those fundamental five and consistency and doing small things regularly. That, that's really it. Those are the three magical ingredients and then recovery and, and transition. That's it. Yeah, there's, you know, with strength training, I've, I'm always saying it's not how much weight you're putting up that matters. It's the quality of the movement that really matters. And if you're really ingraining those movement patterns into your neuromuscular system, you're going to be a much better athlete. You know, it was so funny hearing you say, you know, I like to clean before I head out the door because I actually do that. You know, I, I actually had a very strict <laughs> schedule before my best cross country season ever in college where um, you know, because I can, I could get up 45 minutes before my run and I would, uh, have some water, have a little bit of food. I would do 15 minutes of chores around the house. Then I would do a 10 minute dynamic warm up, and I would leave the house. But the chores were, were so necessary because I had just gotten up and I didn't want to feel, you know, like you feel if you've been sitting at a desk for, for nine hours or sleeping for eight hours. You're just, you don't feel primed to exercise. And that's really what you, you want to do. You want to kind of wake the body up, prime the body and get you ready for exercise. It's not only going to improve your performance, but it's actually going to reduce your injury risk too. Um, and, and then all your uh, talking about being an athlete 24 seven and not just worrying about your physical performances, your needs, all that when, you know, you're spending the hour a day exercising, it's really a 24 hour a day situation. And I remember my college coach saying, look, if you just want to run cross country, then you, you cannot run cross country. I will not allow you to be on the team. Running is a year round sport. It is not just a sport. It's a lifestyle. And if you want to try to be the fastest athlete that you can, you have to run year round. And it's something that you have to think about all the time because you're always training or recovering. And that's something that always stuck with me because, you know, it, it fits very much in line with the thought that, you know, what you do during that hour a day when you're running is important. But what you do the other 23 hours a day is equally, if not more important, because you could be burning the candle at both ends, staying up too late, not recovering enough, or spending 10 hours a day sitting down and putting yourself in these really terrible bodily positions that your body will remember. You know, I, I always like to remind runners that, you know, your connective tissues and your muscles remember the positions that you put them in. So don't put them in really shitty positions because they're just going to remember that. And then you're going to have bad posture. It's going to be harder for you to have efficient running form. And you're going to be way more predisposed to injuries as well. Spot on. And and uh, I'm just going to go back on, on two things here because you really hit out of the park. Number one, uh, the, 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 the chores, it's general physical preparation, which almost nobody does anymore. 
like especially first thing in the morning, uh, my bike rides, uh, my roommates that I lived with when I, I was coaching at, at Pitt used to hate me because I would get up and I would do stuff around the house before getting on the bike at, at you know, 6, 6.30 in the morning. Um, the reason they hated it is because I was doing things that were actually – you know, increasing intensity. So I would clean the dishes a little bit. Dr. McGill, how do I want to put this? Uh, he, he talks about the simple things that have a, a lasting effect and exactly what you said. Don't put your position or your joints into shitty positions, but that's what we do all day. The muscles are going to tighten and shorten to hold something up. There's now a, a advertisements on Facebook about adaptive muscle shortening and making it this awful enemy because we have to have an enemy, right? Well, adaptive muscle shortening, if you're a good runner, that's what the the hamstrings do. They tend to. Like, um, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name. And as someone whose name is mispronounced, I feel his pain. Uh, Ulid, is that right? Is this uh, Kip- Kip- Koje? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're both struggling uh, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, uh, we both suck at names. That's all right. My, my Spanish teacher, uh, my first ever class of college, sat up there for 20 minutes and butchered my name. There, there weren't any any sense of confidence that I, oh, I began college and my life sucks. Um, but he he uh, he's not very flexible in his hamstrings. Now, everybody is different. Every athlete is a study of one because I know I can see some of the, the listeners at home perking up and saying, hey, but I know this guy who can run a, a 245 marathon and he's very flexible in the hamstrings. Great. That's what works for him. It's just we know that the hamstrings tend to work or the fascial system works as a spring, which tends to relate to the calves or the hamstrings. Um, but really the important thing is is whatever you're doing consistently. So if you have great running form for an hour a day and then you're sitting in front of a computer and you're slouched like this, guess what's going to happen? 23 or let's say eight hours out of 24 is going to beat one hour no matter what. Uh, and that leads to the the third thing, which was um, you're burning the candle at both ends. And as my mom working all these jobs, you don't just burn the candle at both ends. You have a flamethrower and you're just melting the crap out of that thing till there's nothing left. It's the same thing when we hit our 30s, our 40s, we start having families or we start doing more life events, whatever it may be, uh, and we really put ourselves into poor and poor positions. And this is where, on my evolution, I kind of went from starting to read Runner's World and being really inspired by uh, the last uh, author, uh, Waddle on Friends. Um, I can't remember uh, his name. Yes, thank you. Um, It was really inspiring, and now at this point in my career, I'm like, I love the fact that he's still doing it and he's still going out there, but I also wish I could have met him 20 years ago knowing what I know now to help keep him from saying waddle odd friends and instead saying, you guys can still run really fast. Here's how. Yeah. Ga- gallop on friends. It should have been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now um, I, I want to dive into some meaty, more technical aspects of strength training for endurance athletes. You know, one of the aha moments that I had was when I finally realized that strength training and running are more, way more similar than they are different. And in one of the re- one of the ways in which they're similar is that they both should be periodized. So if we're getting into real, you know, strict strength training programming for athletes, you know, there should be different focuses throughout the season, depending upon where you're at in the competition phase of the season. Um, But this is kind of a foreign concept to a lot of runners. And and even for me as a coach, I didn't even really think about this until a couple years ago. So how do you think about periodization as it relates to strength training? and, And how do you like to structure things for your athletes? Well, the answer is it depends. And I tend to be a bit more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
individualized. I, I don't carry a whole lot of athletes anymore. I, I did that for a couple of years and it was fun uh, until you realize that you, you're not really giving the best uh, that you possibly can to everybody, but to most people, uh, at least for me, it doesn't work. Some people it does. And that's totally cool. Um, it, it really depends on what are you looking for? What are, what are the things that you need? So there's three big things that we want to look at. Number one is, you know, mesocycle linkage. Can we get technical like that? Is that okay? Oh, sure. I think, um, you know, mesocycle is, as long as you're defining some of these terms, cause you know, I, I think it's really valuable to, know this kind of terminology and vocabulary because it's the vocabulary of running and but then at the same time i also understand that not all runners understand these terms so let's use them but if possible just throw in a quick definition if you can okay and also we'll put a disclaimer i did a a, a video once with somebody and i was like oh it's the pez Serenus, and it was really the Poplidius, and i was just having one of those days and then afterward i was like Oh man, I got that wrong. So we had to reshoot it at the end. Uh, try and keep that from happening. But we all have those those slips. Um, let's go back even further. Let's let's start with the examples of periodization models. We're all familiar with three up, one down, right? We build for three weeks and then come down. Well, why do we follow that? A lot of it has to do with that's one of the models that was made popular. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's called the Slee Maker, uh, which is primarily for endurance athletes. Uh, this is based off of a researcher, just like Tabata is named after a researcher who looked at this specific model. But there are a number of different types of periodization models that you can use. And the better coaches, in my opinion, go out and search these out and try and find what works for the athlete. Um, we have the Matviev, which is volume and intensity are reciprocal. Volume goes up, intensity comes down. That's the baseline model, right? Um, conjugate se sequence system. World, Louis Simmons, conjugate. We're going to work on different training tasks, and they're specifically linked to optimize results. And then there's concentrated loading and Francis and varying intensity. There's a whole bunch of different ones, but we're going to come back to conjugate. The reason being is that the slee maker tends to focus on one thing at a time, and, and you want to get really good at that. And that's what we're here for endurance, right? We want a big aerobic engine, very little lactic acid uh, buildup, very li little lactic acid uh, being a prime energy source for the system because we know it's limited, and we want a big aerobic engine. Well, strength training, Jason, doesn't do that for me. Strength training means I'm ATP, PC, or glycolytic, so I can't do that because I want to run the fastest marathon ever. Well, we can do both. Uh, and I just had a really good conversation with uh, an, uh, pod, another podcaster. Uh, so we'll, we'll post it on mine here in a couple months. It'll be um, uh, that triathlon show with Michael Erickson and I spoke today about how he takes the approach of building a big aerobic engine. Like that's He's very focused on that. It's volume and intensity based. Um, very little bit of intensity as opposed to mine, which is a little bit more conjugate, which is we can build you up as a great athlete looking at a mesocycle and a mesocycle is two years a year four years as, as big as you want it's the biggest cycle that you can have out there and we really want to try and take a look at where are you in your mesocycle and we don't just want to think about today and i think runners as a whole are some of the best athletes out there who really get the bigger picture you're not just thinking about boston this year you're thinking about okay i want to qualify for boston this year i want to run it strong and then next year is the real year so this year is kind of my test year see what i can do see what happens when i get to heartbreak hill which when you actually look at it before the race you're like it's not that bad and you're like 13 you know 14 and a half miles flat and you're like oh crap um, yeah you'll, you'll soon discover it is a big deal when you're actually yeah. in the race 
race. <laughs> yeah, you're like, let's just drive by. And you're like, it doesn't look that bad. That's that's not bad at all. Flat, flat, the lies flat, that F- we tell ourselves before Boston. Yeah. <laughs> I don't personally know, but I've had a couple people do it. And they're like, oh, my goodness. It, it did not look that evil. Um, <laughs> so um, the mesocycle we can break down. We'll say it's a training year. Um, there's the general. This is where we're getting you, you know, gross physical preparation, getting you moving, uh, basic sports specific, and then preparation, uh, immediate preparatory stabilization. So trying to put everything together that we've done, and then a build, and then pre-competitive, and then competitive build, and then competitive. So that's that's the training year altogether. I know I kind of flew through that, but the bottom line is is there is a build, just like you build up your mileage or your speed work, same thing. So in general, we're going to start enhancing your general fitness. Jason, as you started our podcast here, talking about you know body weight exercises, correctives, shoring up some of the weak links, that should be between two and six link, two and six weeks to shore up those weak links. Say it three times fast. Um, but it really does help us because we're starting general. You know, it's not very hard on the system. So a beginner athlete out there, if you're you're listening and you're just getting started, you're just new to strength running a blog post or podcast and you're going through the awesome content there, you can see like, okay, I'm just learning this. The weights are going to be hard for me, but the body weight, I can do body weight squats. I can, I can do hip lifts. Yeah, that doesn't look too bad. And then you start doing them. You're like, wow, this is really challenging to do it right. Jason's telling me I need to feel my glutes and not my hamstrings for the hip lift, but all I feel are my hamstrings. So that first little bit is just getting to, to know the body. From there, we're going to build hypertrophy. Now, most endurance athletes are now running around their room or their office as if their hair is on fire yelling, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Hypertrophy is necessary. And and really, it's not true hypertrophy that we're getting. For most of you as beginners, we're getting strength. We're getting neurological adaptations, neural adaptations. And those are going to be the ones that come immediately. Uh, this is where you see a beginner, oh, yeah, you know, I just started strength training. I, I did squats three weeks ago, and now I'm already up to double the weight I was doing before. My technique's even better. Well, it's not really strength that you're gaining. You're gaining access to those muscles to be able to do stuff. And this is when you st- – you tend to start to feel clunky on the road. And have you had that experience, Jason, where you start strength training and it just doesn't feel right. You go out and you're like, it it doesn't feel hard, but it just, something's, something's not right with my, with my gait right now. Oh, sure. I think if particularly if you're fatigued from any weightlifting that you're doing, yeah, you're going to feel uncoordinated. I think clunky is a word that I often use. It's it's exactly how you feel if you do a brick workout where you do some cycling and then you get off the bike and you immediately go for a run. You're going to feel clunky. You're going to feel disc- uncoordinated and like you're running for the first time. It's kind of a weird experience. Yeah, like a, like a foal in spring. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. And this is an important thing for us to go through. And this is where in in my, I guess, experience and and from what I've heard second and third hand, this is where a lot of runners tend to get turned off to strength training. They go through that clunky phase and they freak out. You know, uh, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Super Troopers, these snozberries taste like snozberries, man. It's like this running doesn't feel like running, man. I can't do it. Um, And they freak out and they go away from it. But this is, it's right on the cusp of when you start to actually begin to enhance your sport-specific fitness and skill. Beginners of anatomical adaptation, we do four to eight weeks of strength, which is technically hypertrophy. So you're doing sets of between four and eight repetitions with moderate to heavy weight. 
And that's all relative to you. Uh, by the way, I want to make sure we're clear here. There is absolutely zero reason, zip, nada, zilch, that any endurance athlete out there should be doing a one rep max attempt ever. Never. You don't need that. The tissue strength, the tissue quality, and this is why we're bringing it up here. The tissue qualities are what we're after from the strength training. It's learning for the tendons, the fascia, and the muscles to all learn how to support and move the body as efficiently as possible. And this is where we begin to start to see, hey, if you're running frequently between three and four times a week with at least one quality let's say not necessarily a track session, but a technique session, or maybe you're doing 10 to 15 minutes of technique each run you go, get out the door, you're working on, on butt kicks, not the one where you're, you know, your gym teacher told you to hold your hands behind you, but actual high knee butt kicks where we're working on that exaggerated running motion, uh, A skips, B skips. We can see a beautiful culmination of strength being converted to, to speed and prowess out on the run. And this is where most runners should hang out most of the year. And this now, some coaches out there, I know you're gonna you're gonna say, no, 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 you have to keep going. There's, there's you're missing two more steps. You're missing max strength, and you're missing, and then you're missing also the third one, which would be uh, maintenance. But actually, most runners out there, if we get you through anatomical adaptation and we get you into muscular hypertrophy, where we're doing sets of four to eight, and we're changing the exercises. So we're not just doing squats and hinges and, and shoulder press and bench press and rows. There's all different types of variations of this, the same but different. So you can have box squats where you come down, pause on a bench, and then come back up. You can do um, B-stance deadlifts, which thankfully are taking off now thanks to Brett Contreras and, and Ben Bruno. Um, there's a lot of different variations that you can use, and you can hang out in hypertrophy almost eternally. And and when I say that, we always have to change things up. I like to say six to eight weeks, change the routine, change the loading scheme just a little bit, uh, make it fresh. If not for uh, the muscles to be challenged in a different way, because the neural system and, and the motor unit will adapt to that. That's what we do as human beings, but also for the mental freshness. Uh, Dan John has a fantastic book called Easy Strength. He and Pavel Tsetsulin wrote this. It really is that simple. It's two sets of five, two sets of five, one set of 10, a set of five, set of three, set of two. And you rotate through those days with an appropriate buildup. And you can do that forever and see fantastic gains. I've done it with athletes before I read his book because that's what my powerlifting coach taught me when I first started. So when people come to me and say, hey, I want to get into powerlifting or I want to put on muscle mass and be a stronger runner. I want to be a runner who looks good, but I can go run a 10K um, fairly fast for my age. We'll go through the easy strength because it's hypertrophy and max strength. Once we get you through that and we're doing the running technique, the periodization for the year should match with your running volume or the focus that you have to have on your technique and distance. It's that simple. I mean, those are the three ingredients. What is your focus right now? I'm building up to a 13.1 in, you know, let's say Marine Man. Um, Okay, great. September, October. Okay, so we're in April right now, April, May. Okay, so we're going to start you off anatomical adaptation for three weeks. Then we're going to go hypertrophy. We're going to go easy strength. We're going to rotate through those days, a day of two sets of five, a day of two sets of five, a day of one set of 10, lighter, a day of five, three, two, appropriate for you. We're just going to rotate for about six weeks, and then we're going to change the exercises. And when we change those exercises, we're going to change the loading because then we're going to be in your speed week. We're going to do three weeks of speed work. And then we're going to go back and we're going to build up that base a little bit more. 
and you can match and should match this strength training along with those demands. Uh, is that followable or did I kind of too many twists and turns there? No, I like it. I like it. I think there's there's a lot to, to tease apart there. And one of the things that I wanted to hit on, and because and, this is a big hang-up that a lot of runners have, is the topic of hypertrophy or growing their muscles to bigger with, than what they are today. And a lot of runners understand that, okay, you don't want a lot of excessive muscle mass. And, and this is also something that, you know, a lot of women don't want to get bulky and, and build up their muscles. Um, but at the same time, it's so extraordinarily hard to do that. So when you're talking about hanging out in this hypertrophy stage, can you assuage the fears of our listeners who think they're going to bulk up like a bodybuilder? Yes. First of all, 15 points for assuage. That was definitely an, uh, 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 what was it, an SAT word? <laughs> and, and admittedly, um, halfway through, I was only 90% sure I was using it correctly. <laughs> that was correct. Otherwise, we'll abdicate it. That's the only one I could remember. Oh, nice one. <laughs> That's because it was the first one in the GRE and SAT study book. I'm like, oh, I remember this one from last time. I got it wrong, too. Um, so yes. So so let's do this. And I'm going to I'm gonna cheat. And I'm actually going to lean over to my notes here because I, I I generally like to go, uh, you know, from the top of my head. And I know that my business manager tells me, remember the whole Peasants Arenas thing? Let's let's not go there. But I think that there's a, an art to mastering the content. Um, so pardon me if I, I my voice changes a little bit. Really, there are a number of things. Hypertrophy in Western culture has become synonymous with Arnold. First of all, that's really impressive that it's just one dude. I mean, Arnold and the Hulk, that's pretty much it when you talk about hypertrophy. I don't want to look like the Hulk or I don't want to look like Arnold. Uh, so kudos to them for that uh, that branding. But really, as you mentioned, Jason, it is so incredibly hard to put on muscle mass like that. I, I tried it. I, I did powerlifting. I had to maintain. By the way, powerlifters are excellent athletes for the weight uh, that they carry around, as are Olympic lifters. And it's a very fine uh, science to be able to do that. Uh, one of my good friends and colleagues here in, in Tel Aviv, uh, Yoni Schweitzer, is about kilos. And he's cleaning 100 kilos off the floor, which is impressive. So he's an incredibly strong human being, and he goes through hypertrophy stages just like you will. If you saw Yoni walking down the street or at the beach with his shirt off, you'd be like, he looks like a runner. And then you see him run, you're like, wow, he is fast. Hypertrophy does not necessarily mean larger muscles, but it means larger cross-section. And there's a difference between sarcolemic hypertrophy and myrofibril hypertrophy. Now, if we get down into the, the deep sciences, so if anybody out there is, is an anatomist, yes, we can argue about this, but really it comes down to if you're training for running most of the week, when you go into the gym and you're doing hypertrophy, you're going to get what's called myrofibril hypertrophy. And what the myrofibrils are, that's the actual contracting part of the muscle. You're going to increase the cross section there, the amount that's there to tear, which is where some of the strength comes. The other part of the strength comes from the surrounding part of the muscle, the, the sarcolemma, which is going to help maintain that muscle tension. And you're also going to have an increase in the neural recruitment or the ability to call on more of the motor unit. So it's kind of like having a two-wheel drive uh, Subaru, but you can flip that switch and now it's four-wheel drive. So kind of the same thing. That hypertrophy that you're getting, because you're out changing and challenging your body and you're adapting to your running, and there's a very big difference between adapting and recovery. When you're adapting to your running and you're coming in and strength training, the body is going to respond to what you're doing more of. 
And the, the cool thing about this is if you want to have sarcolemic hypertrophy, you need to cut down on your running uh, about four to six hours a week is is the the ceiling that you can do. And it can't be very intense. It needs to be pretty much, you know, you're looking at endurance, maybe tempo at best, but no more than four to six hours a week, which some runners, that's where they're hanging out. And if that's you, I would encourage you to challenge yourself a little bit more with running technique drills, uh, speed drills, agility drills, tempo, threshold, uh, not necessarily full out sprinting, but hill sprints where the decrease for, for injury is lowered because of the, the change in the angle. And this is important because the myofibrillar hypertrophy that you're getting is going to help you in your sport. The sarcolemic hypertrophy is when you do sets of 8 to 15, we'll say more 12 to 15, and this is the bodybuilder style. And I see a lot of runners doing calf raises, a lot of runners doing bicep curls and tricep curls, and it's not really necessary. Sometimes calf raises are, yes, but usually if you're having an issue with the calf, that's indicative of something on that lower posterior chain not working and it tends to be the hamstrings or the glutes that's not always the answer it depends it really does but you have to think is this the best investment of my time for a bodybuilder sitting there doing calf raises for 20 minutes until their calves feel like it's going to explode great they're trying to get those calves to be bigger you as a runner are trying to get them to be stronger to be able to push you down the road so what I'm trying to say here is there's two different types of hypertrophy. The myofibrillar is, is actually going to be the contractive part. The sarcolemic is the, the watery part, we'll say, of the muscle, even though it's not quite correct. It's the filler part. It makes you look more full. When you do hypertrophy properly, it's very hard to get to the point where you're actually really building the muscle that much. Like you look at bodybuilders, they're spending four, five, six hours a day in the weight room, pushing themselves to the absolute limits. As a runner, you're not going to be able to get there that much. Will you see lean muscle mass gain? Absolutely. If you're doing it properly and you're tying it together, as, as Jason and I have said earlier here, with doing the technique work and the speed work and the agility work and the jumping work, and you're working on becoming a better athlete, you are going to get faster on your run. If you simply do what you do today, go to the weight room and, and do some consistent stuff, You'll probably decrease your risk of overuse injury unless your technique is off or your joints are really out of alignment, and you probably won't get much faster. But is that decrease in, in injury worthwhile for maybe putting on a pound or two of muscle? I would say so. Having torn my meniscus four, years, four weeks ago, I'd say absolutely, totally worth it because if you're not progressing, you're going backwards. Yeah, I can't agree more. And I was actually joking around with a power lifter a couple years ago. I know a few of them. And these are people who kind of structure their entire lives around being able to lift incredible amounts of weight. And the kind of criticism that runners have about strength training, oh, I'm going to get bigger. Uh, you know, I, this is not something that is really a goal of mine. You know, it, it's almost a slap in the face to these power lifters who train so hard to be able to lift all this weight. And they're sitting there saying, guys, it's really hard. You're not just going to accidentally, you know, turn into a bodybuilder. It doesn't work like that. You know, it's kind of like a runner saying, look, you know, I, I want to go for a couple half an hour runs a week, but I really don't want to be a sub five minute miler. You know, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Jason, that's 
the best comparison I have ever heard. I'm going to steal that. Totally stealing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Um, Menachem, this was really fun for me. Uh, I, I learned a lot because, you know, you clearly have more of a science background uh, than I do. And so I really appreciate going down into the weeds on some of these topics, particularly about p- different periodization models and the types of hypertrophy that runners can expect and that we really have nothing to fear when it comes to lifting weights and getting bigger. Uh, you know, the way I think about it is a lot more in line with body composition. You know, you might look like you have bigger muscles. You might actually gain a pound or two or maybe three, but you might lose a little bit of fat off your body. And at the end of the day, a slightly more muscular, but leaner and more efficient athlete is going to be a faster runner. So if, if that's the trade-off, then I'm going to, I'm going to take that trade any day of the week. For the most part, that's going to be a yes. And I just want to say two really important pieces that we didn't touch on that I have in my notes with big highlight and starred. Number one is if you're training to be big and slow in the gym, that's what you're going to get. So we do need to lift heavy weights after going through anatomical adaptations and hypertrophy, then we get to max strength. So you do need to lift heavy things between two and four times, two and three times uh, uh, in sets of three to five sets, let's say. But If you're not taking the time to do something as simple and consistent as jumping rope, it really is that simple, jumping rope for 30 times really really fast and 20 times uh, nice and high and slow but with a little knee bend, very little knee bend, uh, with good posture. If you're doing that in your warm-up, you're priming the body, you're saying, okay, this bounding, this whole jumping thing that we're doing, which bounding is pretty much running, is really important to me. So what I'm doing here in the weight room, I'd like for you to take this to running. Um, that's going to be an important thing for us to do. So uh, doing a lot of heavy weights slowly can bring down your performance running. So I just want to put that out there as a disclaimer. So if you're doing it the wrong way for too frequently and you're not paying attention to that speed, agility, uh, and bounding and running and taking that conversion over to tell the body, hey, this is how I want to use this newly found access to the motor units and strength, uh, you can see slower times. I just want to make sure that's, that's very clear to the listener. Yeah, you certainly can, particularly if, like you said, you're not doing the running training on top of it that is going to best unlock all that new strength and allow you to really access the the muscle fibers for for more speed. And, and I think it's really critical to have both. You know, you have to have that good strength training, but then, you know, what good is the strength training if you're not doing the running training as well, the drills, the speed work, even the high mileage to b- further build economy and, and your aerobic engine. I mean, everything is connected. And, you know, like I like to tell my athletes, you know, we have to think about training in holistic terms. You know, that's why I am just completely allergic to these training programs that only focus on one thing. You know, you're going to be a great marathoner by lifting weights and sprinting. And, you know, there's like no distance work in there. (laughs) Or, you know, the opposite where, you know, we're going to treat you as just a pair of lungs with legs and run 100 miles a week. But, you know, there's no strength training at all. And there's no, there's no, um, you know, drills and all the other things that really make you into a better athlete. So, um, I'm really, I'm really glad you you're here and we're able to dispel a lot of these myths about strength training for runners and, and go into the science about it. So thank you so much. Uh, I learned a lot and I also want to give our listeners an opportunity to, to learn more from you. Where do you hang out online? Where can we find your stuff? Uh, a lot's on YouTube. Uh, that's really my my big love is YouTube and creating content. So uh, there's a number of of exercises and and approaches. Now it's it's 
targeted towards cyclists. And I put that in air quotes here because we, we had to choose a marketing spearhead. Otherwise, nobody's going to be interested. I guarantee you it, it, it applies to runners as well. Uh, I'm on Facebook, although I've really found that last couple of years, Facebook has made the reach for those who actually like the page much less. Uh, but if you do look up human vortex training uh, on Facebook, that's fairly active. Um, but HV training on YouTube. And I do have a course on Training Peaks University called Strength Training for Triathlon Success. Uh, hopefully, we'll have one for running here in the next couple of months. Uh, but the Strength Training for Triathlon Success is the most uh, well-rounded of the two courses I have out right now. So those would be the two I'd recommend. Uh, you can try me on Twitter, but 140 characters to explain the difference of the Matviev and uh, the Sleemaker, uh, uh, different types of uh, periodization. It's a little bit too too little for me. So <laughs> there's lots of links going to, to other posts. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Well, thank you, Menicom. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Hey, oh, thanks for listening to my conversation with Menachem as we discussed some of the finer points of lifting for endurance athletes. As always, there is a blog post for this episode on strengthrunning.com with links to the resources and tools that we discussed so you can get even more out of this conversation. And one more plug for Strength Running's most popular lifting program, High Performance Lifting. It's on sale right now, something that almost never happens, so take advantage of saving about $75. To my knowledge, this is the only program developed by both USA Weightlifting and USA Track and Field Certified Coaches. The programming creator, Randy Hauer, works with a bunch of elite athletes in Boulder, Colorado, and soon you'll be lifting just like the pros too. Go to strengthrunning.com HPL and use code STRONG to save 25% on any tier of the program. You can expect a 16-week strength program that includes two days of lifting per week divided into four phases. You're going to start with general strength and injury prevention and gradually progress to doing explosive Olympic lifts and plyometrics. The goal here is not only to make you a stronger and more powerful runner, of course we want that, but also more injury resilient and faster. The goals are speed, strength, and capability. The capability to do more to handle more, and ultimately to race faster. I think you're going to love it. Go to strengthrunning.com HPL to join the high-performance lifting family. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being so passionate about this sport and your own personal goals, and we'll be in touch soon. Run strong.